0: I am excited about what I see. I, I think I need to get something like this started in Decatur. I, I really do. I think this is exactly uh, what the church needs and what the world needs to see uh, it is a united church, not a church divided, not a church is talking bad about each other, but churches coming together for a common goal and for a common purpose. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. I, I, I was thinking about, okay, what do I talk about? You know, this is the third time that you've done this. And, and my guess is that you've kind of heard some of those unity sermons before. You know what I'm talking about. They kind of kind of go down that same unity path, and that's great. We need to be reminded of those things. But what I decided I wanted to do tonight is kind of share with you a story from Scripture of the power of unity. Uh, in order to get to that point, though, I've got to lay some groundwork about where we're going. And so grab your Bibles, go with me to the book of Nehemiah. I have fallen in love again with the book of Nehemiah. I have spent probably the last two months diving deep, digging into this book, trying to mine the treasures that are there. And I think there's just so much for us to take from this book, especially when it comes to the power and the strength of us coming together as the people of God. But it wasn't that way at the beginning of Nehemiah. You need to know just a little bit of history as we get started. In 586 B.C., long after Israel has already been carried away into Assyrian captivity, the Babylonians come and take what's left of the Jewish people, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, into captivity. They literally are carried away with hooks. Babylon comes, takes them to Mesopotamia, and what Babylon would do when they conquered a nation, they would move them out of their own country, and they would, stout, they, would, they would place a different defeated people right there in their old city. And that's what happens to the Jews. They're carried away to Mesopotamia. Another group comes to live in Jerusalem, and things get really, really bad for a while. But there is a glimmer of hope throughout the text that God is going to bring His people back To Jerusalem. He's going to take care of them and he's going to return them to this place where he has put his name. But it doesn't look like anything like that's going to happen at the beginning. And then the Babylonians get destroyed by the Medes and Persians and a king named Cyrus decides that he's going to allow the Jews that want to. And sadly, not all the Jews wanted to return to Jerusalem. And so 40,000 Jews, under the order of King Cyrus, are allowed to return to Jerusalem. And they want to regain the the, the glory days of Israel. But really, they move back, and it's just a mess. It's just a hardship. There's just a lot going on there uh, that's causing some problems. Well, it's 80 years later. 80 years later, after that first wave uh, of people have returned to Jerusalem, that Ezra decides to go back to Jerusalem and try to rebuild the temple. And he's in the middle of this rebuilding process when we hit the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is 13 years after Ezra, and he sees the he hears some very bad news, and he decides I got to do something about it. Let's look at what that bad news was. Nehemiah chapter one. Let's look at verse two. It says, Then Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And so he wants to know what's going on with the people of God? What's going on in God's city? And they said to him, Verse three, The remnant there, oh, the remnant there in the province who have survived the exile is in great trouble and great shame. The walls of Jerusalem are broken down, and its gates are destroyed with fire the news that he gets about the people of God is not good and I decided what was I going to do with this lesson I thought about getting up here and telling you the statistics about how bad it is for the people of God today I don't know if you're aware of this but every single week in America another church closes its doors never to reopen again never to reopen again and it's been this way for 10 years Every single Sunday, another church of Christ closes its doors, never to reopen again, and it's been this way for ten years. Every single, ye- every single week, I mean, the, 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 I could go on and on and on about the numbers. Things aren't good, right? And so what do we do about that? How do we respond? What are we supposed to do? How are we going to show the world this united front that we need to show? Well, well, I think we get some of the answers here in the book of Nehemiah. In fact, look at verse 4. Because here we see, I think, the proper response to what happens when we find ourselves in a place that we don't want to be. It says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So before we get to the heart of the strength of unity, I want to share with you four things that Nehemiah does that I think we would do well uh, to do as well. The first thing that we see here that Nehemiah does is he weeps and he mourns. And this is not... This is not that weeping that says, oh no, that's so bad. Oh, by the way, honey, what are we having for dinner tonight? (laughs) That's not the kind of weeping that we are having here. This is not the kind of mourning that's taking place. This news so struck Nehemiah's heart that he could not contain his sadness. If you look at verse 1, what you find there is that Nehemiah, this story unfolds in 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 the month of Nisan. And if you look to chapter 2, what you find is another month mentioned there. Flip over there. Take a look with me. Uh, Or The month of Nisan is the second one. This was the month of Chislev in chapter 1, and it's the month of Nisan in chapter 2. You know how many months that is? That's over four months. For four months, Nehemiah could not control and contain his sadness at what he had heard about God's people in Jerusalem. Have you ever been so, so sad and upset and you tried to hide it from the people around you, but they could kind of see through you? They could kind of read you, right? Well, that's what's going on here. He's so distraught that he cannot hide it no matter how hard he tries. This is a man who is more concerned with the people of God than he is with his own life. And I just want you to notice tonight the heart of Nehemiah. He weeps and he mourns for days upon days upon days. But that's not where he stops. I want you to notice the second thing that he does. In verse 4, we see it there again. Not only does he weep and pray, but the Scripture says he continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. As he mourned, as he wept, he did something significant. He called on the one who could do something about it. He called on the name of the Lord. And this was no quick prayer before a meal. This was Nehemiah out of his sorrow and from the depths of his soul crying out to God. Listen, it would have been really, really easy. It would have been so easy for Nehemiah just to say, eh, who cares? They're over there. I'm here in Susa. It doesn't matter. There's nothing I can do about it. But that's not what he does. It would have been easy for him to lose sight of who God was. But listen to how he starts this prayer in verse 5. He said, "Oh Lord, God of heaven, great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear, he says, be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night. I mean, this is a guy who has a relationship with God. He knows God not just on some intellectual level. No, he knows God on a heart level. And again, this is no one-time prayer. This is is something that Nehemiah did regularly. And in fact, if you look to chapter 2, Nehemiah is going to be confronted by the king about his sadness. Not smart to be sad in front of the king. And so he's, he's terrified, but the first thing that he does when the king calls him out for his sadness, the scripture says in verse 3 and 4 that he stops and he does what he always does, he prays. I think it's safe to say that prayer was a way of life for Nehemiah. I want to ask you tonight, is prayer a way of life for you? Is prayer a way of life for you? Are you praying only for your wants and only for your needs? Is God your vending machine in the sky where you pour in your quarter's worth of prayer and expect your quarter worth of blessing? Has prayer lost its power in your life? It was where Nehemiah ran to when he heard the news. And it's where we should run to. It should be our first line of defense as well. You know, we're going to look at two other things that Nehemiah here does before we get to the strength of unity. And I want you to know that these first two things that Nehemiah does this weeping and mourning and this fasting and the praying I think when trouble and hardships hit, most people will do those things. I really believe even those that do not know the Lord, do not have a relationship with the Lord, will do those things. Think about to, think back to September 11th of 2001. This is what our nation did. After after 9-11 hit and the towers fell, we we wept and we mourned as a nation. And not only that, we we prayed and we prayed to God. Churches across the entire country were filled. But that's kind of where it stopped. What Nehemiah does next is what separates him from everyone else. It's what Nehemiah does next that I think is why Second only to Moses, the Jews hold Nehemiah in such esteem. What are those next two things? This next thing that he does is he confesses and he repents. Look at verse 6. He says, uh, I'll Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments. We've not kept the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Nehemiah says, God, you are just and you are justified in the punishment that you have laid out to us. We deserve everything that we have received. We have sinned against you, we've acted corruptly. We've not kept your commandments. I absolutely love this. What do you see missing from that? What's missing from that is the excuses. <laughs> it's not, "Oh, if you wouldn't have allowed these people to come in, then we wouldn't have acted that. No, 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 no. There's, there's none of that. None of. There's no excuses whatsoever. He's not blaming someone else, which is what happens in our culture today. Nehemiah is honest before God. This is what separates him from everyone else. And if you want to be known as a person like Nehemiah, this is what you need to do as well. I think we've lost the importance of confession as a church. If I may be so bold, I feel like confession has been reduced to a short phrase we say before we baptize someone. Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Yes, I do. Oh, that's the great confession. And listen, I'm not not downplaying the importance of, uh, of confession in that way. I'm not downplaying the importance of declaring Christ as the one and only Son of God who came to live and die in my place, but that is not all confession is. Confession is where I acknowledge not only who God is, but I acknowledge His authority over my life. It's where I acknowledge that He is Lord and I am not. Confession is where I tell God, I'm going to stop running my agenda and I'm going to start running Yours. I commit myself to running yours. And Nehemiah says, we have sinned. And at the same time, he points to something else. He points to repentance. Look at verse 8. He says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. I love it when we remind God of his word. I don't think he needs the reminder, but he does it anyway, right? He reminds God. Here's what he says. He said, God, this is what your word says. If you are unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the people. But, he says, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are outcast in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Nehemiah reminds God of his promise. He reminds God as if he needs a reminder that is if people return to him, that he would gather them back. And so there's an implication here. There's a, a something we need to do. We need to read between the lines a little bit here. And what Nehemiah is saying is, God, we have learned our lesson. We've not only confessed you, but we are repenting. We have sinned, but we have changed. We've returned to you. And now he says, deal with me according to your promise. One of my favorite scriptures on prayer. Is found in Second Chronicles chapter seven and verse fourteen, and there uh, it says this: If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will hear their heal their land. I love that verse. I, I've tried to make that a part of my regular prayers. And what this is, is a conditional promise from God. Did you know that a lot of the promises that God gives us in Scripture are conditional? And this is certainly one of them. He says, if we are His people called by His name, and we will humble ourselves, if we will pray and seek His face, not our ways, then, here's the promise, God will hear from heaven, He will forgive, and He will hear This conditional promise was given at the inauguration of the first temple that was built that that Babylon came in and destroyed. And so isn't it appropriate as that temple still sits in ruins that Nehemiah calls on the name of the Lord in the exact same way? I find it so interesting. So, Nehemiah weeps and he mourns. He prays and he fasts. But what separates him from everyone else is that he confesses and he repents. And now, here's what really separates the men from the boys, so to speak. It's number four. Nehemiah does something bold. I wonder if we've lost our ability to be bold in the church. Three years ago, somebody had a bold idea to get all these Franklin County churches together. That's awesome. And look, tonight is uh, is the outcome of that. How awesome, how wonderful is that? But listen to Nehemiah's prayer in verse 11. You want to talk about boldness. Here it is. He says, "O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fill your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And so Nehemiah already has a plan even though it won't be four months until he's going to be able to, to make it come together. And so here's what happens in verse four. Here's the bold move that Nehemiah makes. He says, then the king said to me, what are you requesting? Remember, in verse 3, he's sad in the king's presence, which was a death sentence, but the king likes him. And so he says, what's going on? Why are you sad? You've never been this way before. And he says, well, why shouldn't I be sad? Why shouldn't I be sad? Verse 5, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, send me to Judah and to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, listen to this, the queen sitting beside me, according to the research I did, that's none other than Esther. I think that's why it's put in parentheses like that. Isn't that cool? So here's Esther, who's been in this same spot that Nehemiah is, sitting next to the king, and do you think he doesn't have the favor of the king with Esther sitting right there? Queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the provinces beyond the river that I may let them pass through, that they may let me pass through until I come to the Judah. And I letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me basically everything I need. Now listen to the end of verse 8. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah knows what he's attempting to do what he is asking for the king, he knows that this is in accordance with the will of God and his plan for his people, and so he moves with boldness. That's what it means to seek the face of God, to seek the things that God wants, like unity, to seek the things that bring him glory and that bring him honor, like what you're doing tonight. And as he does, what does God do? Exactly what he promised. He hears from heaven, he forgives, and he heals And I believe that God wants the same thing for his church today. He wants to heal, he wants to forgive, and he wants wants to hear, forgive, and heal. The question is, do we have tonight a room full of Nehemiahs who will humble themselves and pray and seek his face? That's really the question that we have to answer tonight. Now, this is where the story gets really, really good. And we're going to run quickly because they only told me I had 20 minutes and I've already gone over that, but you know, I'm a preacher, it's what we do. So here we go. So so here's where the story gets really good. Nehemiah makes this 800-mile journey to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, he is instantly met with opposition from two people, Sanballat and Tobiah. And the lesson for us in that is simply this. Whenever you set out to do something bold for God... I don't know if it's true with this, but my guess is whoever set out to bring this thing together that we're celebrating today probably instantly met with some opposition first. It's the way it usually happens. When you step out to do something bold, you can expect opposition. That opposition will not stop Nehemiah though. He comes to Jerusalem and tells them the story, tells them what happens, and after he inspects the damage, he tells them the plan, and they all get to work. Well, almost all of them. You see, when you decide to do something bold for God, you can expect opposition from the outside, but you can also expect opposition, sadly, from the inside too. Take a look at Nehemiah 3 verse 5. So in verse 1, the high priest gets up and he leads. He says, I'm going to do this. And so he starts building. But when you get to verse 5, you see some Some problems. It says, next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Interesting, isn't it? So you have all of these people that are starting to rally. They're starting to come together. They're getting united. There's some strength there. And then all of a sudden, these Tekoite nobles step up and say, nah, we're not doing that. Now, I don't know why. I don't know what was going on with them. Maybe they thought they had a better plan. Maybe they didn't like how Nehemiah was doing it. Maybe they thought they were above that kind of work. Regardless, they refused to submit. And sadly, so many of our churches are still full of Chicoite nobles who are going to do everything they can to do nothing and fight against those of you that want to do something bold for the plan and for the people of God. Listen to Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1. And so it says, and I know I'm skipping around, we could spend months talking about this great book, but chapter 4, verse 1, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. Starts calling them names, start doing everything he can to stop them, but they are united. And because they are united, nothing can stop them. Not even the jeering, not even uh, this kind of craziness that's going on here. And he said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heap of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up upon it, it'll break down their stone wall. This is B.C. trash talk going on right here. Hear, O God, Nehemiah says in verse 4, for we are despised. Turn back their taunts on their own heads and give them up to to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and Let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So, listen to verse 6. Here's the strength of unity. In spite of all of the opposition, in spite of everything that's going on, so we built the wall. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height. Why? Because the people had a mind to work. They were united in purpose. So they were successful for three reasons. I want to get ahead of myself. Here's why they were successful. Number one, they didn't let opposition stop them. Will you? Will you let opposition stop you from that bold thing that God needs you to do? Number two, they were united And because they were united, nothing could stop them. And number three, they were successful because they had a a mind to work. Let's wrap this up. Look a little bit further. I want you to see how connected and united they were. Verse 15, chapter 4. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plans, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spear, shield, bow, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. And those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored... I love this. Each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And on each of the builders he had swords strapped at his side where he built. And the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And listen to what he says. He says, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and wildly spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. And so in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So they have this plan, man. We're going to sound the trumpet. And when you hear the trumpet, we come running together and we defend each other. We fight for each other. We stand together as one. We get united the way God has called us to. They were in this together. They fought for each other. They were united in mind and purpose and in every way. And because of that, Nehemiah 6.15, So the wall was finished. Listen. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. A job that should have took years upon years upon years upon years was finished in 52 days. Why? Because they were united. They had a mind to work. And they didn't let anything stop them. Listen to verse 16. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived, listen, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Yes. Yes. The work that they did was finished and glory went not to themselves, but to God. So let me say this as we conclude here tonight. I heard there's 19 or 22 churches. We'll just say there's somewhere under 2,000 churches tonight here gathered together. Preachers' counts are wonderful things. I want to say this to all of you. You, you can do bold things together. You can do kingdom-impacting things together. And when you unite, like you are tonight... Not only do you show a watching world who Jesus is, I need you to know that you can accomplish a whole lot more together than you ever could by yourself. The wise man in Ecclesiastes 4 is right. Two is better than one. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Not to mention a 22-fold cord. In a world where churches seem to be competing against each other, which is crazy when you think about it, in a world where we are known for talking bad about each other, you are, you can be, and you should be different. And That's what I love about getting to be a part of this tonight. I want to encourage you to keep walking this path together. Find even more ways to partner with each other and never forget that the way we show a watching world the love of God is by loving each other. And So I pray that is what's going to happen here tonight. I I don't know if there's anyone here today who's not already named the name of Christ and given your life and obeyed the gospel. Uh, But we want to help any one of you who may have not done that yet. Let today be the day that you make that bold move and you step out in faith and you confess and you repent and you get to the waters of baptism where God will remove your sin and apply his grace and mercy to your life. If you haven't done that, let tonight be the night. If you need prayers of this or any congregation recognized here today, I I hope that you'll come. There are seats down front. Someone will meet you up here and we'll pray with you and love on you. If there's anything that you need, let us help you while we stand and sing this invitation song together tonight.